This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Your Federal Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Fresh off a 5% pay raise, federal employees can look forward to some more enhancements coming their way, like the possibility of another hefty pay raise next year. For more on this and a few other matters, I spoke with the Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton. And so this is kind of the marker for members of Congress pushing for federal pay raises in this case. Congressman Jerry Connolly in the House and Senator Schatz in the Senate. And I would say this is more of a negotiating tool for them in terms of trying to put this marker down as you get into the appropriation season. So the federal pay raise is typically based off of the most recent change in the employment cost index for private sector wages and salaries. So if you're looking at that Uh, that ended in 2023, it's 4.5%. That's typically reduced down by half a percent, down to four for that across the board pay increase. That's probably what you're going to expect to see in Biden's budget if they're looking to keep that same pay rate policy going forward. Then they include a certain amount in this case, in recent cases, 0.5% for locality pay. The FAIR Act says, let's go a little bit higher on locality pay. There's a large pay gap between federal employee pay and similar private sector jobs of 27%. So they're looking for a 3.4% increase in locality instead of that 0.5 percentage point increase. And locality is spreading like wildfire in some sense, too. Every year there are (laughs) new regions, and you wonder, how did that get to be a locality pay? It's harder to find places that aren't locality pay. Yeah, there's still this general rest of U.S. locality pay, which actually also increases from the base, you know, to the extent different geographic areas continue to be above that. You're going to have these new locality pay areas crop up. But, you know, certainly in large metropolitan areas, whether it's San Francisco or New York or in the D.C. area, people are paid more because the cost of living is higher and wages are higher. So it is good policy, I think, to adjust pay for you know what the market rate is in that area. And what is the latest thinking on whether federal employees are paid more or less than their counterparts in the private sector? I've always felt that, yes, some of them are underpaid. Some of them are actually better than the private sector. I don't think there's any single index that makes any sense because of the range of jobs involved. Yeah. What the federal government uses is the Federal Salary Council, and they try to match job to job, similar private sector jobs with the federal jobs and come up with some percentage difference, which is supposed to inform the changes in locality pay. And they found that taking that all in aggregate, there's a 27 percent difference where the private sector gets paid more than federal jobs. Now, that's not taking into account benefits. The Congressional Budget Office has looked at this before. They look at less of a job-to-job comparison and more of a human capital approach. So people with similar experience, people with similar educational backgrounds, and what are they getting paid? And they find kind of the most educated in the federal workforce are paid less than their private sector counterparts. But if you get down to the lower educational levels, they're actually paid a little bit more when you're taking into account benefits and everything else. So depends on how you're analyzing it. It's complicated. But I think certainly there are plenty of cases where you know pay needs to go up to be competitive with the private sector in recruitment. And in the last couple of years, you've probably noticed, as we have, that lots of agencies are getting spot authority to offer extra pay, extra benefits, extra hiring eases for 
strategically important jobs they might need. It's fairly widespread, though. Yeah, I think that's one of the justifications for the FAIR Act or trying to try to close that locality pay gap is how much agencies are pushing for these special pay authorities so that they can actually recruit people because what is being provided under the basic or general schedule system isn't enough. So I don't know if the in any one year that locality pay increase is going to be 27%, but little inches upward would help prevent kind of these situations where agencies are really struggling to recruit people because their pay is low. Yeah, especially in an age when a pack of potato chips at the grocery store is five bucks. We're speaking with John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF. And the OPM data breach, this was back in 2015, kids, but it still resonates, doesn't it? And there is something that would extend protection for people's identities continuing. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so just as a reminder, people, OPM allowed their database to be breached and personally identifiable information was revealed. Now, Congress responded to that by providing identity theft protection up to $5 million in insurance, but only for like the next 10 years when they include it in an appropriations bill. So there's an effort to extend that. Information is out there. It hasn't been put back in the box. So people may still need that protection resulting from that breach. So Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton introduced a bill to extend it. I think this will probably get a little bit more attention as we get closer to that expiration date. But it's just a reminder to people that, yes, your data still may be out there. You still may need some of this protection. And it should be the obligation of the federal government, which gave it away, to provide you with that identity theft protection. The strange thing about that data is that it never did manifest itself in any obvious way. There wasn't some big, giant phishing attack that hit you know, a million federal employees or anything, no one really knew what happened to it or where it went or if it ever was used in some manner. Yeah, I think it's probably difficult to actually parse out whether if you do have some identity theft or fraud attack on you, if it came from that OPM data breach or a target breach or something else, there's data hacks all over the place. OPM is not the only place to be exposed in this realm. So I think the danger becomes when People can collect data from multiple sources and starts piecing together and piecing together and they get a much clearer picture of you and your identity and kind of how you operate. You know, the one piece of data or the one attack may not be itself the most, but certainly is relevant in this case. Right. And the other thing about such data, it does go stale because people change jobs, they move and so forth. So you got to act quick on it, especially if you're going to launch a phishing attack based on what you know about True. that person and, at and that some moment. some of that's email addresses, but... I think in this case, you're talking about social security numbers, CSA numbers, just identities and addresses now if you've moved. And certainly there was concerns about people who were in intelligence agencies, people whose identities has been protected based on their top secret clearances or otherwise. And eventually you retire and then you worry about pharmacy benefits and Medicare <laughs> Part D. Haven't had the pleasure of navigating those shoals yet, but it's complicated. But now there is a bipartisan bill that would help with Medicare Part D and drug costs. Yeah, the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability advanced a bill that applies to FEHB. Uh, that was their jurisdiction. This was also going through energy and commerce and ways and means that's to take it up as well. And it's just an effort. And it's nice to see some bipartisanship on this issue of drug pricing. And that would apply to federal retirees through FEHB. And now that more plans are integrating with Medicare Part D through that as well. And just prohibit some practices like the PBMs negotiate drug prices 
and they may get rebates, but they may not pass that rebate on to you as a consumer or the insurance companies that you're paying the premiums for, for those claims. They may steer you to different pharmacies, so you can't go to the pharmacy you want. So some common sense legislation, getting at some drug pricing and getting at some of these practices that reduce your choice. So it's good to see some bipartisanship even in the midst of a very partisan environment that some business can still get done and some improvements can still be made. Yeah, that idea of the pharmacy benefits manager, I guess it's had a good theory in that someone third party would argue with drug companies and get prices down, but it's kind of turned into a profit center almost where the savings don't necessarily get passed on to the actual buyer. Right now they have an incentive to negotiate and get lower prices, but they don't have the incentive to necessarily pass that on to the consumer as thoroughly as they should or could. John Hatton is Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. We'll take a short break and when we return, an update on where federal employees actually work. You're listening to Your Federal Life here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to Your Federal Life here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Agency managers seem to engage in an endless tug of war with employees over telework. Now some members of Congress have asked for more data on telework. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman and I discussed this. So now they are turning to the Office of Management and Budget to get a little bit more information from uh, agencies that are working on telework or return to office plans. That, of course, Tom, makes sense. OMB is of course, the ones who put out the memo in 2023 that called on agencies to return employees to the office more often and started that whole process. OMB has what are called work environment plans. This is something that agencies require to send them as part of that return to office memo that we saw last April. And it outlines individual telework and return to office uh, policies for agencies. So now you have members of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee wanting to get copies of those reports. They've, of course, been looking for more detailed information on returning to the office for many, many months now. Right. That was the memo that talked about the healthy workplace and healthy environment. It was like 19 pages of dense prose that very few people could understand. Yeah, the idea there was, you know, they called it organizational health. So they're looking at, you know, I call it return to office memo because that's what most people might know it as. But it's more generally this idea of, you know, having a workplace that makes the most sense for productivity (laughs) is how OMB puts it. Now, these Republicans on the Oversight and Accountability Committee in the House, why did they send this request to OMB? Because they couldn't get what they wanted out of OPM? So pretty much they've been going around for many, many months now looking for more data on telework. I think their main concern, what they say, is that they think telework is leading to poor performance from federal employees. They've gotten a lot of pushback from saying that sort of thing, but they're basically looking for data to back up whether or not telework is working for employees. And they believe that what they have available, either from OPM, 
from individual agencies or what they've heard in multiple congressional hearings that they've held. They feel like they still haven't gotten enough information and they're looking for more. You know, I, I believe they it was last May that they requested 25 agencies to give them specific numbers of teleworking employees. And they said that in the responses that they got from agencies at that time, there were 11 of them, so close to half that didn't weren't able to give those uh, numbers of teleworking employees for one reason or another. And besides data on for agencies that reveal it, how many people work and telework how much time, what other data is actually available? Is there data, for example, that ties outcomes or productivity to telework? So this is the part that is really interesting. And I think the answer is really that it just depends on the agency. Every agency is a little bit different in the way that it collects telework data in the way that it measures performance or productivity, which makes sense. You know, agencies have different missions or different ways to measure whether or not their employees are doing well. But overall, the Office of Personnel Management or OPM issues an annual telework report to Congress, and that's where Congress gets its main source of information on the percentage of employees who telework, how often they telework. And OPM, in their most recent report, talked a lot about the benefits of telework. So that is basically the main source. But even within that report, OPM has said that agencies don't always have all of that data available, and sometimes there are gaps in the data. So it's not a perfect report, and that might be part of the reason that you have Republicans pushing a little bit harder there. There's also information in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey or FEBS on telework, but even those answers are a little bit different. So there's not really a clear a clear number, which is what Republicans are asking for. Right. I mean, a lot of agencies depend on measures of casework, for example. How many cases did we adjudicate? Did our backlog go up or down? How many loans did we process? How many returns did we process? I mean, those are fairly objective measures. Last year, we did 10,000. This year, we did 12,000. And by the way, 40% more teleworking hours. I'm making up these numbers. Is there a tie-in? I don't think anyone, even academically, can can say one way or the other. I, I think that's fair. I think it's really hard to say one way or the other. But, you know, from federal employees themselves, they a lot of them do say that they feel more productive working from home and they are able to contribute to the mission just the same as they are in the office. So I think that's why you do get a lot of pushback from employees, from unions on these return to office mandates from agencies but we're still seeing those continue. So there is a little bit of back and forth, a little bit of tension there that doesn't seem to be going away. Yeah, some of the people who went into complete telework, I heard from one reader at a large agency after reading a column I did, said that she was skeptical of atomizing everyone through telework, and now she's a total convert and thinks that this agency's return to work schedule will actually undo some great gains they've made in her particular unit. So I think, yeah, a lot of it is very situationally oriented as to what the real outcome is. And there's other pressure sources on federal telework and returning to the office. What are some of those? I think the the main one that we're seeing other than House Republicans is the White House itself. So you have the chief of staff, Jeff Zients. He's made multiple calls on agency heads and cabinet officials to say, you know, essentially, why aren't you returning to the office fast enough and really kind of making a stronger push to get employees back into the office. OMB's general guideline is they want about a 50% in-person presence from federal employees across all agencies. So I, I guess some are a little bit more ahead than others in that regard. 
I think the Department of Veterans Affairs and Homeland Security are ones where science has said they're kind of more positive examples, but there's others where we haven't really seen their full plans develop. So I think you're getting a little bit a little bit stronger of a push from the White House as well as in Congress. Yeah, and it really depends on an agency like Veterans Affairs, what function, what division. I mean, Veterans Benefits Administration, people that do casework and processing of claims and, and applications, well, they don't need to be in the office. Whereas, you know, if you're a thoracic surgeon, well, yeah, you probably have to do that in person. So, I mean, again, it gets back to the situation. I was on the phone for an hour with an airline representative the other day on a complicated trip I'm trying to take. And all of a sudden I could hear her dog barking. I said, you're teleworking. She says, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. She was in one coast, the airlines based 2000 miles away. And, you know, you couldn't tell the difference. That's what networks are all about and IT is all about. All right. So this letter is there from these Republicans. Did they demand deadlines and compliance from from the Office of Management and Budget, the White House effectively? They're, the deadline that they gave is actually today, February 14th, to respond to that request. So we'll see if OMB gets back to them with more information. OMB didn't sit, tell me anything about plans to respond to the letter. So it's just going to be a little bit of a waiting game there. But oversight staff members said, you know, they also didn't say whether or not they are planning to have another hearing on telework or what else they would do if they didn't get or if I guess if they weren't satisfied with OMB's response. So sure. we're right on that deadline. We'll see what happens. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Also check out Drew's week-long report on the newly revitalized federal executive boards. They serve the 85 percent of federal employees who work outside of the Washington, D.C. region. Drew discussed this with OPM's Kelly DeGraff. Most federal agencies have regional offices in key geographic areas throughout the country. And in each area, the senior executives from these offices, they come together to form the federal executive boards or the FEBs. And they meet regularly to collaborate on projects, to share resources. Um, these boards help the government work better really all over the country. There are 26 boards across the country and each represent an average of 140 agencies, um, which is really impressive. The federal government is the largest federal employer in the United States with approximately 2.2 million employees and roughly 85% of those employees live outside of the national capital region. And that is who uh, these federal executive boards represent. And they're really integral in advancing community engagement, employee development, um, emergency preparedness efforts, and really making government accessible on the local level. So maybe you can share a little bit more about maybe some specific examples of how FEBs uh, work. You know, you mentioned you have community engagement efforts, you help with emergency preparedness. So what what does that look like or what are some of the things that you work on there? This is my favorite question that I get asked because it is the uh, it's my opportunity to really tell the incredible story of the FEBs. So. They really are instrumental in, in several areas, including creating shared training programs that benefit multiple agencies. And uh, these types of things not only streamline costs, but they really also foster that sense of community among federal employees. In fact, just yesterday, so I'm in Seattle. Um, I'm in Seattle right now meeting with our, our Seattle board. And yesterday I met with federal employees who are part of the Seattle Leadership Associates Program. 
And this is a program that brings together emerging leaders from across 170 federal agencies, which I just think is incredible. And they come together and, and the program is really about cultivating that next generation of federal leaders. And they do this by equipping them with the skills um, needed to succeed. And they match them with mentors and lead them through special projects. And, you know, this is the example just from the Seattle Federal Board. And again, I had the opportunity, the pleasure to meet with them yesterday. But most, most FEBs offer similar programs for early career employees. And what is also incredible is that they maintain an active alumni network so that individuals who have been in the program then tend to come back and serve as mentors for these emerging leader, these emerging leaders programs. So that's a, that's a big one is these um, these learning and, and professional development opportunities. Um, the FEBs also partner with educational institutions regionally to really work to create uh, diverse talent pipelines into public service. They meet with students, they attend career fairs, they meet with counselors, all to promote um, public service and, and federal employment. And they, along those same lines, they um, conduct community outreach. They organize uh, volunteer opportunities like blood drives, clothing drives, um, holiday toy drives, and they lead the combined federal campaign in their regions. Um, the FEBs also conduct interagency emergency exercises, and this is so important. They conduct these exercises in advance of an emergency to be able to establish protocols and identify areas for improvement before an event happens. And they really establish that cohesiveness and, and um, connectedness. For example, New York. Um, New York recently held an exercise that involved, it was in partnership with the New York Emergency Management, and it involved over 60 agencies all coming together um, and really understanding each other's plans and who brings what to the table. Um, two more areas that I'll just that I'll mention that I think are really important. The next one is um, DEIA. Uh, so they the board sponsor diversity, equity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility committees. Um, these committee these committees come together to implement training programs to address things like unconscious bias and create again those mentorship opportunities to support underrepresented talent. And they really provide a space for these important discussions and the sharing of best practices. And then one of the other um, pieces that is consistent across the boards are recognition programs. The FEBs do a phenomenal job at celebrating the the incredible work of our workforce of, of workforce excellence through these cross agency uh, recognition activities. And while each board is unique, they all focus on core programmatic themes that that really include things like workforce hiring, recruitment leadership development, uh, emergency preparedness, and community community initiatives. Um, it's challenging to single out any one board as they all contribute so significantly in each of these areas. And that's OPM Deputy Associate Director Kelly DeGraff speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Find Drew's extensive coverage of federal executive boards at federalnewsnetwork.com. And that's it for this week's Your Federal Life. We'll be back next week with more for your professional and financial affairs. Until then, I'm Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Your Federal Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Your Federal Life.